So you have to really understand not just the technical aspects, but where's the rule of law? And, and I like to think that there's incredible assets in America where you have rule of law, you have infrastructure. And again, they haven't brought modern technology and using the new software aspects, the new technology that can reduce your risk and reduce the cost of your capital. Welcome to Wealthion. I'm Wealthion founder, Adam Taggart. I'm here with a great guest today. I'm here with Marin Katusa. Um, Marin uh, is uh, one of the most highly successful uh, independent natural resource investors in the world. Um, he has a specialized approach of uh, bringing new technologies to old assets and basically uh, unlocking value that uh, was in some cases unattainable or unreachable by, by previous forms of technology, but, but using technology basically to resuscitate these old resources and get a lot more value out of them. He's been incredibly successful at it. Another thing that, that really, uh, I think, characterizes uh, Marin's success is he factors in intentionally uh, the importance of geopolitics uh, into his investments. As a matter of fact, he's, he's told me that, that that may, in some cases, be the most important uh, factor to, to, to keep into consideration. Lots to talk with Marin about today, um, especially we've had a lot of bearish people on the channel today. I think uh, Marin's going to have uh, you know, some elements here uh, where he sees lots of opportunity in the world. Very excited to dig into that with him. Marin, thanks so much for joining us. It's my pleasure. Hey, it's a real pleasure uh, for me. It's the first time you're on the channel, so welcome. Um, hopefully, this is the first of, of many appearances going forward. Um, lots of questions for you, but but if if we can just start with a general one, I like to ask everybody the first time they come on this program, what's your current assessment of the global economy and financial markets? So my view is obviously more on the resource and, and the utility energy side of things. So this is where I believe it's at. The velocity of capital slowing down. You have interest rates going up. There is actually... This is going to be shocking to a lot of people. Major deflationary pressures, deflationary pressures in the commodity cycle. You look at natural gas, you look at oil, look at copper, you look at these base metals. It's in a deflationary trend. Things are slowing down. China hasn't reopened the way that everyone expected on that. As interest rates go up, the cost of capital moves up. It means the growth aspect of the market is really compressing. And now the bean counters are looking at the dollars going, geez, it's going to cost us eight, nine percent capital, not three. And that difference is why velocity is slowing down. Um, I think it's going to continue this trend in the near term. So be very cautious in where you're investing. And, and the key aspect, Adam, people forget about this, you know, just because you could have two exact copper deposits in two different places, call it. Uh, Chile, which is a huge copper producer, things are changing there. And, and it's, it's, it's this kind of cyclical process in Chile. Look at the administration. You know that the taxes are going to increase. You know that the cost of labor is going to increase, the power costs. So all these aspects have to be incorporated. And the bankers don't want you to know that. The analysts, remember, when they do MPV discounts, when you're talking about a nav of a company, you're telling me that the same gold mine, call it in Zimbabwe, or the DRC is going to get the same discount as something in Nevada. That doesn't make any sense. So why would it like, it's just the bankers are in the process of selling paper. They don't want you to kind of think about, wait a second, the political risk. Uh, it is a huge factor that is being overlooked and mispriced in our markets. All right, great point. And, and and just for folks that that aren't uh, as, as steeped into how valuations are done, uh, a common way to value an operation is to project out its cash flows and then apply what's called a discount rate, which is what Marin was just talking about there. That discount rate really is a it's a measurement of of, of risk of of how risky you think this venture is. And as Marin is saying there, to uh, you know give the uh, a project in a in a very politically unstable part of the world, uh, the same discount rate as one say here in the states, uh, really just doesn't make any sense. Uh, and so you know, you're basically saying that that risk is to a certain extent being deliberately obscured slash mispriced yep. by oh, bankers who just want to sell you on these projects. Correct. Keep the capital going. Keep the capital going. Okay. Um, all right. Uh, so um, you're. You spend your time a lot in the hard assets commodity world. We're going to talk a lot about that today. Uh, there's a chart you're famous for. I'm going to ask you about a little bit later on, Marin. 
Um, but real quick, in terms of this, this, these deflationary forces, I just want to make sure I understand you correctly. So as cost of capital goes up, obviously fewer projects are going to be undertaken, right? Because there's just less skin or there's less profit to be made because your financing costs uh, are bigger. Um, I've had people on this program before, like uh, Rick Rule and Tavi Costa, who are involved in natural resources investing, and they've been ringing a warning bell for years saying that we have underinvested in capex in a lot of uh, commodity sectors uh, going forward um one i want to see if you agree with that which is it, it, you know, they're basically saying even if demand sort of just stays where it is for the for the next decade we're likely going to see increasing shortages of some key commodities because we underinvested in the production capex i assume that that a rising cost of capital is only going to exacerbate that issue is that all true so Rick's a very close friend of mine. Uh, we were partners in a fund together for over a decade. So I know Rick's thought process really well. So let's use uranium, which everyone will use as the case study for this. And now I'll specifically state, I was the largest global uh, financier of uranium projects in the world. What we did was when uranium was under $20 a pound, go up and buy permitted built facilities and buy producing cash flow royalties on world-class assets that are built in politically stable jurisdictions. Now, you got two items with uranium, and I've got a chapter on uranium in both of my books. Now, when you take, say, Kazakhstan, when you look at Kazataprom, it produces about 40% of the world's primary uranium. But all roads lead to Moscow, who invested, who built the processing of all that. It's still directly interlinked with Russia. You have that aspect. You also have the currency aspect, Adam, that people forget to talk about. So even though if you go back 10 years, the price of uranium went from, call it 60 bucks to $20, Tenge, the currency of Kazakhstan and the ruble devalued at a greater rate than the actual commodity price, which meant that they're still okay on a relative basis. The third part is, is just because uranium is in the right setup, and it slowly moved up to about the mid 50s. Why would I go to places like the Arlet Basin, which is very high grade, built out by the French in Niger or other aspects in Africa, where it doesn't matter the price of uranium, it has to go to $200 to ever make it economic to build the infrastructure to go make it work? The grades are too low, CapEx is too high. The government's going to change the goalposts on you as you get closer and closer, just like Kazakhstan did to all of the foreign investors, whether they were French, European, Japanese, or Canadian. Remember, 20 years ago, Kazakhstan produced less than 2 million pounds of uranium. In 20 years, they've increased that by over 25-fold. Okay, wow. That's the reality of what people are, are, have to understand. It's using American technology, not Russian technology. ISR is American technology. So all of these aspects, just because of the setup, why do I want to go say there's projects in the Athabasca Basin in, in Saskatchewan, in Canada, which is, uh, think of it as like the Nevada for uh, like what Nevada is for gold or Saudi Arabia is for oil. When it comes to uranium, it's in Canada because it's so high grade. But it's this basin where you think of like you got the East and the West. It's got these kind of rings of deposits. There's companies there that are saying they got nice deposits. But the problem with uranium is it's radioactive. You can't just send it to a mill in China or in other parts of the world. You have to have a mill. To build a processing mill is going to cost billions of dollars. And the problem with Athabasca Basin, I've been there many times, and it gets minus 30 degrees Celsius in the, in the winter. You can't just, it's not tents. These are forts that have to have the capacity. You have to build libraries, music room, gyms, huge cafeterias. It's like a, 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 like a full-out NASA complex that has to house people during the harshest conditions on the planet. That's billions of dollars of CapEx. You know, the roads, and, and you have to have permitted. You can't even drive on other companies' roads. The process there is realistic. And for people to, but you know who is mining? There's certain management teams that are mining their shareholders, paying themselves tens of millions of dollars and mm -hmm. haven't produced a single pound of uranium. So even though I believe in the uranium story and the narrative, the supply demand matrix, 
you have to be cognizant that is that investment you're playing, is it permitted? Is it built? Because at the right time, you could have bought built, permitted for a fraction of the NAV to go do that today. And that's when cost of capital was a third of what it is today. So be very careful. The other aspect is government intervention. You, you have to play, uh, really realize that mining is one of the toughest, dirtiest industries on the planet. That's hence why it's so cyclical. But it's not like you can pick up your factory and leave. The government are going to change the royalties on you. Um, you look at Argentina, which I say for everyone, it's money. It's where money goes to die. Uh, I spent a lot of time there. One of my partners, Doug Casey, has invested a fortune there. And you ask him, he wished he never did because it's just a black hole for capital. Um, you look at the Yakamorte shales where Chevron put in billions. They can't make it work because the, the government, you can't even get your capital out. So you have to really understand not just the technical aspects, but where's the rule of law? And, and I like to think that there's incredible assets in America where you have rule of law, you have infrastructure. And again, they haven't brought modern technology in using the new software aspects, the new technology that can reduce your risk and reduce the cost of your capital. All right. Uh, that is a phenomenal way to kick this interview off. And I want to go into a number of the points you just mentioned there. Um, uh, and you've even written a book, actually, on um, kind of your bullishness for America as, as a place to focus in for natural resources. Um, so I definitely want to get into that. Um, uh, if we can, Marin, what I'd like to do is maybe start with where are the, the places in the natural energy space where you see the most opportunity right now that you're most excited about? But maybe before we answer that question, um, we were talking before we turned the, the cameras on here, and you had talked about the importance uh, of, because of all these, these risk factors that you just listed off, the importance of what you said is following your process, right? And, and I believe there's a genesis to that mantra in your mind, kind of a deeply personal one, but I think you might be willing to share that. If you could just sort of understand, if you could explain really quickly for folks, you know, why this follow your process is so important and how then you apply it to the opportunities we're about to talk about. For sure. Look, Adam, it was um, Friday night. Um, I was with my wife and I go, oh, Dr. B emailed me and he's a fan of your show. And him, he said to him and his friends, follow your work. I go, wow, it's been a while because Adam and I have been emailing for a while, trying to figure out our schedules. And, uh, oh, geez, what is it now? About a decade ago, um, I was a young guy, very successful on top of the world. And uh, one of your subscribers, a doctor of mine, saved my life. And I was having chest pains. Uh, I went to the emergency. The emergency was packed of, you know, all sorts of people across the spectrum. Um, and he said, look, it, it, if you have the signs, you got to stick to your guns. And I stuck to my gun, stayed there for 40 hours, requested an angiogram and ended up saving my life. Uh, without that, the surgeon, I ended up having a quadruple bypass, uh, said, you wouldn't be around by Monday. He's just, I was lucky I had such a strong heart. I had a disease, blocked up arteries. And uh, that kind of made me as a young man, have a reality check going, geez, I've spent the last 10 years of my life on the road, traveling everywhere. And really, I went through my process with my team. And I was kind of, if you ask the Rick Rules of the world, who I partnered up with at that time, I was the next guy, the up and comer, right? And I was a machine for a while, like literally put my whole personal life on hold to make a bunch of money and be successful. When I went through all of my investments, Adam, Pareto's law was so evident. Almost 90% of my time was wasted traveling, going through all these projects, learning the industry, but investing in management teams that are unblemished with success, as Rick would say, meaning <laughs> Pareto's law was so obvious that I started honing down my process, focusing on the factors, these little metrics like cutoff grade to average grade, uh, the, the style of deposit, the metallurgy, and spending time with industry veterans and experts who had so much to share but the bankers overlooked because it was all about pay me now. So I rehoned and kind of reset my mindset and the process. And a lot of people didn't like what I was doing in uranium in 2017, 2018, 2019, because, you know, uh, everyone's a contrarian until 
prices go down 75% or your yeah. portfolio goes down 75%, but the process is the process. For me, what is uh, a company established in Vancouver going to have any leverage against a Chinese company or a Russian company in Kazakhstan or in Uzbekistan or in Niger? Like, come on, guys, get real with it. And I've been there and done it. But you know where uh, a, a company out of the U.S. or, you know, that's permitted and built? Well, there's a rule of law. So there's a process to it, you know, in which sectors I think are really interesting. You don't want to, like for me, you look at AI right now. Well, how are you going to compete with the Silicon Valley and all the money in AI? But what about, you know, the carbon credit sector? Everybody hates it now. A year and a half ago, every idiot was raising $20, $30 million and investing in stupid projects that I said, are you guys insane? What are you doing? Again, stupid people do stupid things and they lose money. But that doesn't mean you can't make money in a contrarian investment. And the less people there are competing with you, that sector is not going away. It's going to evolve and adapt. Companies like Vera are going to come and go and have to restructure themselves in their, in their process. But that is an incredible industry. I also am very bullish on uranium. I think uranium is great. But I'm not going to Niger or Kazakhstan. Been there, done that. And I've realized that there's no advantage for an American or Canadian company to do that. So you got to be realistic with where you're going. I'm also, I love gold and gold's been doing well. I like copper, but again, you got to be cognizant of where are you going? Are you going to go to Zimbabwe for copper? Hmm. You know, if Glencore, who's one of the largest commodity traders is trying to come into Canada and de-risk their portfolio, if the sharpest sharks in the industry who have their assets in those politically risky jurisdictions are trying to follow my concept of de-risk your portfolio. Um, you might want to pay attention to that. Got it. And are we are we at a point maybe in industry where people are waking up to the Marin Katusa strategy and saying, like, like, do you see this de-risking towards huge? The, the big companies, huge. If you go on my website, the first thing I ever published was when I bought uh, just under 10% of a, a company that became Kirkland Lake. And it was all about, my report was all about Fosterville. And I told everyone, this thing's going to produce 400,000 ounces of gold. Rick, who you mentioned earlier, sent me a whole email and I saved him and he, he, he thought I was wrong. And I said, Rick, we'll see. I think I'm a... I'll, 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 I'll cross swords with Rick any day when it comes to evaluation methods. So, and he's a very close friend of mine. I say that with honor. So my point being is I was wrong. It didn't produce 400,000. It produced over a million ounces. Wow. And that stock went from a dollar to over $65 a share in four bucks. And guess what it was, Adam? In Australia, an old mine that everybody forgot about, Doug Forrester, a good friend, came in the office. I was fortunate enough to have the first meeting that they ever had with everyone. And I saw what they had, brought modern ideas with modern technology to an old producing asset that was de-risked. And it ripped 65-fold in less than four years. You don't need to go to the moon to get those types of returns. And it wasn't this junior with a, you know, a promoter wearing a flashy uh, suit that's unblemished with success. It was done by Doug Forrester who's got a pattern of every 10 years, find he's a brilliant geologist who has a pattern of every 10, 15 years finding a brilliant deposit. That's what you want to follow. You don't need to go look at the major takeouts, Newcrest and Newmont. Look what that's why, why what was that all about? You know, why did Newcrest take out my good friend, Bob Quartermain's project in BC and Pretium because it was built and producing de-risked. They're not buying out the things in Africa. They're not buying out the things in Argentina. So the big companies, why is Glencore sniffing around tech, which is Canada's largest diversified miner? Because they want to be in Canada. You're seeing it already. So that, that's that's really interesting. And there's a couple of things wrapped up in that. I, I want to talk in just a second with you about your origins, which your career origins, which were, I believe, in fracking, right? Which is doing exactly what you were just saying, which is taking new technologies. Um, I mean, not that fracking's super new, but I think you took the latest applications of fracking technology to older deposits and then, you know, got them to produce again. Um, but, you know, the, the natural resources investing space um, is, is very 
challenging for just the average investor to invest in because there's so many things, as you know, that go into assessing the potentiality of a particular uh, job, you know, particular play. And what I've encouraged people to do going forward is, is you know, in, in most cases, find an analyst. And, and your job is to try to find the best analyst that assesses these in, in, in the way that that you think is going to maximize success and, and follow their lead as opposed to trying to cobble together your own individual portfolio because you just don't know these companies. Way too many risk factors for you as a regular person to wrap your brain around, stay on top of all that type of stuff. You're basically kind of reinforcing on that in my mind, but you're also saying, you know, hey, you, you the, the natural resources space is famous. Everybody wants to get into it because you can have these dramatic, you know, increases of several multiples in the place that go right. But you're saying, you don't have to go stretch out the crazy risk curve that a lot of these plays are on, right? You don't have to no. buy a place in the Congo and just pray that that someone's going to finally crack how to extract capital out of that country, or they probably never will, right? Where you're saying you can get 65x returns in certain cases in some of the safest jurisdictions with the greatest rule of law, with the most experienced management teams. So why bother with those super risky places? Just look for the best of the best. And you may get a still a phenomenal return with a hell of a lot lower risk risk profile. Hundred percent. And I, if I may take it a step further, please do. A, a lot of analysts, I would be careful. Um, they're spreadsheet jockeys, and they're mm -hmm. paid by the bank that gets the revenue from the broke the bankers and the brokers who sell stuff. Um, going to you know kick rocks. I know so many of these analysts, but they've never built the mine. They actually have never financed the mine they never actually invest in what they're telling you to write a check for. So I will guarantee you that someone who's invested, let's say the lead order of a financing like myself, I lay that if it's not going well in the middle of the night, I'm thinking about it versus an analyst who went there that the company paid for a business class ticket, got wined and dined, got to see everything that was polished and nice and wrote it up and it's down because he's got no skin in the game. So I think to take it even a step further is follow the winners, the patterns of success, the franchise players, there's individuals. And, and here's the thing, you're not going to have a portfolio of 20 stocks. Literally, if you ask anyone in the sector, whether they like me or not, which I couldn't give a shit, this business isn't about having friends. It's about having uh, something of value to bring to your customers as one of the largest financiers of this game. And, and I've raised more money than most of the banks combined. I own two gold companies, two, two. Okay. And, and I'm very bullish on gold. Um, I am easily one of the largest financiers in uranium. And right now I own one uranium stock. Okay. And there's like 500 of them. And some of these management teams, I literally tried to avoid um, because I think I'd catch something called an FTD from them, a financially transmitted disease. <laughs> and so many of these people in this industry are doing too many things and are stretched thin. And, you know, I, I just sit there, these management teams who are paying themselves insane amounts, picking peer groups who the whole industry needs a reset. And all you can do is the Atlas Shrug concept. Don't engage with those type of uh, management teams. Stay away from the FTDers, the rounders who are always hanging around. You know, so the reason, Adam, to be totally frank, why I've kind of stopped and pulled away from doing a lot of the media and the industry is there's just not that much to talk about, right? And you know, a lot of these management teams, um, like I said, uh, probably couldn't get a job washing cars in a used car uh, dealership. So be very careful where you're putting your money and specifically even the brokerage firms, you, you really believe there's a China wall where the, the brokers and bankers, investment bankers who bring in the cash aren't talking to the analysts who get paid by that revenue. It's the biggest scam in the industry. And then what type of repercussions are there for that? Yeah, I, I, so I started my career on Wall Street. I know that that Chinese wall is more like Swiss cheese. There you go.
All right. So um, that's very, very useful. Um, thank you for that perspective, um, especially coming from somebody who's, you know, at the end of the day, you got a lot of skin in the game, Marin, right? So, you know, it's it's not just a reputation or an opinion that you're putting at risk. It's it's actual your your personal net worth. Um, let me ask you this then. So uh, you're bullish on things like uh, carbon credits, uranium, gold, copper. I know lithium's on that list too. Um, what are the at a high level, you know, what are the things that you look at? So you, you obviously, it's an extremely considered decision for you to put your money in. Like you said, you're only going into one or two plays in each of these sectors. Can you just talk a little bit about kind of what are some of the commonalities that you look for that help you get to a green light to say, all right, I'm going to commit capital? You mentioned lithium. Let's take lithium. Lithium is one of the most abundant elements on the planet, right? You look at it, but it's about refining and processing. And, and I've invested what his, in, in my history, three uranium stories, and they've all been successful because you follow this pattern, this process. And I'm very like, it's all on my website, my whole track record, everything's there. And, and trust me, if there's a mistake to make, this guy's made it right. And it, it's hit my portfolio, but you rebound and you learn and you make, try not to make the same mistakes twice. But you look at lithium. I've always stated this, the governments are going to change the game. You look at what Chile's just done to the lithium sector. That is a game changer in a bad way. Because and real like, quick, can you just summarize sure. what they did for the folks that aren't aware? They said basically any new contracts, uh, basically it's not into production, pre-existing, it isn't grandfathered. We have to restructure the new government take where the government company is going to get at least 50% of the asset. And that's where it starts. And then you know what governments do. Hey, politicians are really successful at one thing, taking your money right? That's the one thing that you can guarantee it. So that game is be very careful. Now, a lot of the hard rock stuff that has to go to China, because China, just like in the rare earths and lithium, that's where the processing and refining is. Well, just like fracking changed the world, specifically in America, it really had its impact. The clays, the lithium clays is a game changer for the lithium industry. And Elon Musk is saying it, frankly, also, it's about having a large deposit. That's very key, big league deposits, because the big companies want to be able to rely on something for many decades, like yeah. a, a true industry, uh, long-term, stable, safe supply, where they cannot rely on shipping it to China, get it refined and all the games that China is going to play. So that's a, a, a perfect aspect and then you can kind of start avoiding all the noise in the sector. Keep it simple, the processing, the metallurgy. There's great gold deposits out there. But, you know, if it's preg robbing or different aspects that you're going to have low recoveries, you know, everything can be solved, but your costs go up significantly higher. Yeah. So I like how I got into fracking really early. Uh, Rick, who is a close friend, I'll use him as an example. He was focusing on conventional because that's what he knew and that's what he was doing for 30 years. And he was very successful at it. And he had his team of experts doing that. And I sat there at the table with Rick going, I have no advantage here. I cannot beat him. But my geology prof at university was one of the industry leaders in unconventional shales. So I went to him and said, hey, I can't compete with the conventional guys but I know nothing anyways, because I was just young. This is only going almost 20 years ago. Unconventional is conventional to me, if that makes sense. Sure. So we went, yeah. yeah. And we went, put together a team. And for a fraction of the cost, we were picking up acreage for less than 25 cents a hectare. Well, the only reason we didn't do it, in the, <laughs> just to give you an example, and this is recorded and it was time. A very close friend of mine who had all these projects in Texas, I said, we got, and this is in 2005 or six, it was a hundred bucks an acre. And, and I said, ah, oh, man, I just don't have the cash to do that. Three years later, it was going for $40,000 an acre, but it's okay. We did really well with Quadrilla, which was the European shale concept. So my point being is, is you can go with these new technologies that are proven where you have an advantage and you're kind of the facilitator because by the time I figured out unconventional, it would have been the same time to go un, uh, as conventional, but unconventional today is conventional. And I 
didn't have to compete with guys who had 30 years of experience in the sector, right. if that makes sense. Yeah. So that well, was I mean, how I, you know. Th- yeah, that's how you gained your advantage and, and then, you know, executed against it. Also, your timing was phenomenal, right? Which is that was really kind of the start of the shale revolution, right? I mean, you were you yep. turned out to be an early player in it, which was phenomenal. Um, all right. So, um, yeah, we've talked a little bit about this, but um, uh, I, I'm trying to think which which one to go to here first. Maybe maybe I'll go to the negative first, then go to the positive. Um, so we've talked about the rising cost of capital, which you said is is you know basically a deflationary gravitational force on the commodity space right now. Um, the impact of of that additional cost of capital, you know, it hurts projects themselves. Um, but it also it does hurt countries too, right? I mean, there's the interest on the national debt uh, that will be getting impacted by that. I, I'm making my way to why you're talking more about being bullish jurisdictions like America, like Canada, um, you know, any other countries you want to add to that list. You mentioned Australia earlier, but real quick, I know you've sort of tweeted out some warnings about uh, at least having to take into account interest on national debt in in, in terms of the countries that you're looking at. Anything, anything you want to expound on there? I think most of the, well, let's take Canada as an example. I'm Canadian, born and raised. Um, our finance minister can't even answer a simple question about the debt. So the point being is that the decisions they're making today, uh, they're not even aware of the issues and it takes years for that to work through the system. Mm-hmm. It, it's it's a thing that the, the taxpayers have to deal with. It's the issue that the corporations... But will the politicians do the right thing? They're just going to say whatever they think will take them to keep their jobs so they can, you know, pretend and dress up and, you know, be the posers that they are. But when it comes to state levels, um, the, the fact of the matter is, is you can have operating gold mines in democratic states like California. And I'll give you an example. Ross Beatty and I, I was the second largest shareholder of Equinox at the time, and he had this idea. I said, I will back him. Together, we financed it. And it was when gold was $1,150 an ounce. We bought a producing gold mine from a company that was stuck with too much debt. And I remember Ross and I were walking down the street, and I go, imagine when gold gets to $1,250, what a cash (laughs) machine this will be. Uh, Did I think it would get to $1,900? Sure. I wrote that it will eventually get there. But- my point being is not all gold. When I say I'm very bullish on America, there's certain areas that I won't go to invest. Like you, it's a big place, um, but there's places like South Dakota that are open for business. And people say South Dakota, like what Deadwood lead? Oh, damn right. People forget about Homestake. I'll give you a perfect example, Adam. Homestake produced over 40 million ounces of gold, built the Hearst Empire, and it was sitting there for 25 years with not one person going into the data room. So me, uh, Dr. Bob Quartermain, when everybody was at home, you know, day trading in, in, in April of 2020, when there was no commercial airplanes uh, allowed, we had the idea to take a private plane, fly to South Dakota, pick up this asset that nobody was focusing on and bring modern technology and bring it back to life. Same thing in Utah, which is the highest grade producing gold mine. So you stick with the winners that know what they're doing. A guy like Bob Quartermain's done only three companies in his life and has sold each one for multi-billion dollars. Check. People, number one. Is the resource, is the endowment there? Is the historical production? And can you bring an advantage to it? Can you bring modern technology to enhance this and unlock the value? Check. Does the government want you there? Do they need the jobs? Do they want the jobs? Or is this an area that wants tourism, right? And things are cyclical. So you got to go there. Well, South Dakota and Utah, you know, someone made a comment to me about, ah, yeah, we're going to go work with Mormons. Damn right. I want to work with the Mormons. I went to site. I'm a pretty big guy. I'm 200 plus pounds, six foot one. I was the smallest guy. These are cornbread, tough Americans, no earrings, no long hair, uh, LTIs, little things, Adam, like, uh, uh, Lost time incidences, super low because they they take care of it. They don't come hungover. Uh, and, and look, 
I'm a religious when it comes to an investment or apolitical, but mm-hmm. you had this, you know, there was a famous person I brought who was an investor. And I said, the guy was like, can I please take a picture of you? I'm like, oh, you're going to show your buddies at the bar. He goes, I don't go to a bar. We don't drink. That was, you know, so as people making fun of the Mormons, I'm going, that's an asset. These are young. We're talking about not 60 year olds. The average age at the mine was late twenties to early thirties. They can do things themselves. It's not using consultants. Those are the little variables. You know, when you go to a site, is it messy? Do you see cups everywhere? Is it scattered? LTIs, where are they to the industry? Where's Where are they on the cost curve? All these little factors that you pick up, little tricks, like is the uh, cutoff grade one and a half times its average producing grade or three times? You know, what's its met recovery? All these little factors and, and the reality is, is you know that all governments are going to try to steal more, but at least the ones with rule of law are confined to how much they can steal from you. All right. That is great. And if you don't mind, I'm just going to dial through that list one more time just to make sure that folks who want to take notes kind of have it. Um, I just say some of the things that you see as most important are one, having a large deposit, right? So you're already yep. removing the, the uncertainty of, hey, I've got an explorer. We just don't know how much is there, right? Um, in most cases, you're looking for places that have had tremendous proven large deposits. Take like uh, you know the the, the mine home up there, stake in South home, Dakota, home stake yeah. in South Dakota, right? Um, uh, people, quality of management. I'm hearing you say is like super premium importance. Uh, There's Port, a perfect one. Example. Just look at their cost base. Here's a perfect question. Look at their invested cost base, their actual dollars versus what their compensation is, okay? Mm. So many of these management teams are taking 10 times more in in compensation salaries and bonuses. Why the hell should you have a bonus? Your stock's down 75% and you're still not in production what you said you would do. You suck. You should be embarrassed to get out of bed and show up to work. You should be, the exchange should say, you know, the exchange should have a criteria of who should be running these companies, but that's a side issue. You look at their cost base. So Adam, if their cost base is $1 and they're telling you to buy it at 10, are you aligned? No, but you're in a situation where their cost base is $2 and you can buy it at a dollar. Ah, and, and they have no other deals and they've put 10, 20, $30 million into this deal and it's focus factor. And you know, they've done this time in and time out on that type of asset. That's a check on skin in the game. That, that is a great example. Thank you. That is perfect. Yeah. Look for the management team that has a, a an intrinsically important priority to get the price of the company above yours just for them to break even on it, right? No, no bigger tractor pull for success than that, right? Um, okay. So third is, can you bring advantage to the deposit with new technologies? We've talked a lot about that already, but, but that's a key one in, in terms of your approach. Uh, fourth is, does the government want you there? Right. Uh, and, and, you know, or the community or the community, right. All right. Government and community. And, you know, I put rule of law into that as well. Right. You know, is it a government that you can trust more or less to abide by what it says it's going to do. Right. Um, and then the last is labor quality, right. Which also goes to the community, but, you know, do you have access to labor that you can depend on? And you gave a great example of some of the things to look for and infrastructure. I call it OPM other people's money. So there's a deposit that we went, it's on my website, where it would cost $500 million to build the infrastructure that is already there. And it's already been drilled out. And we got it for a fraction of that price. That's a good start. That's all costs that you would have to pay to build. So look for those things. Okay, great. So let's dig into that for a second. So let, let's let's take a home, home stake, home, home stake, right? Let's take home stake. <clears throat> um, it was a mine that produced very well decades ago, got mothballed because the technology at the time couldn't get to, to what was left. How do you go about being able to really determine how much is left to play out in this mine? So, so Adam, that is a key aspect. It didn't shut down because the technology uh, wasn't there to process it. It shut down because of two things. The mine was producing for like 80 years at that point, and they didn't invest into where they needed to go because the management team came in and went and merged with the company to build a big asset in Australia. The price of gold at that time went down to below, I think it was $230 an ounce. And they just thought that there was more upside than investing the capital required at that time to develop it out. But here's the beauty of it. 
as that mine shut down, the exploring guys drilled a hole, which was a barn burner that showed a whole new deposit. But because the company evolved, you know, I think it was Charlie Munger who said, you want to invest in a business that is so successful that even an idiot can run it because eventually they will. Mm -hmm. um, idiots took over and the bankers and the uh, CFOs, the, the accounting guys, and it was based off of new metrics for bonuses. And the market got tired of this old story. It happens all the time. Uh, Dennis Washington, one of the wealthiest people in America, definitely one of the richest in Montana, bought the Butte mine for $13 million off of Newmont, which was one of the world's largest producers of copper because the board decided, well, the bankers have told us our stock is, this is in the late 80s. The bankers said, that our stock's underperforming because investors don't know if we're a gold company or a copper company. So we're going to sell all our copper assets. Now, Dennis Washington at the time purchased it, not for its copper. He purchased it for the hangers because he had a huge construction company. And he's like, holy crap, it cost me $30 million to build this infrastructure. If I can buy it for 13, 13 boom. Yeah. The fact of the matter is a few years later, the old mine manager finally gets to meet Dennis Washington and Butte Mine produces for the family $3 million of free cash flow in their pocket a day. Oh my God. So when you have these idiots make these decisions, it, it's a cyclical market. And if you're an alligator, I talk about an alligator investing. Why? An alligator can go a year or two without eating. It can control its metabolism, but it's right there. And you don't know that it's paying attention. That's what we did with what we did in Utah. That's what I did with Quadrilla. I've done it with Copper Mountain. I've done it so many times where you don't need to be the smartest guy in the room, but you have to do your homework and, and align yourself with people with the same interests who have skill sets that you don't have. And mm -hmm. I'm not interested in investing in science projects. That does mean that I'll miss some unexpected, crazy drill hole, but those are so rare. They are so rare. It's easier just to stick to a process that works. So back to your process for a second. So I'm kind of like reminded of, of Moneyball, right? You know, Michael Lewis's Moneyball, where, you know, all of a sudden people realized there was a better way to manage a baseball team, right? Um, you've got this process. So to me, you're, you're, you're sort of like the, the, the new Billy Bean of, of how to invest in, uh, in, in natural resource plays. A, how many other people are kind of, beginning to follow your process, right? Copying your book um, because it works so well. Uh, and B, like, how, how many of these kind of forgotten plays are out there? Like, is, is it, you know, there are only a few and it just takes a ton of work to find the couple that are out there and then they'll be gone or there are a bunch and there's just, you know, it's going to take people a, a lot the of world, time. Yeah, the world's a very big place. So what I spent a lot of time was looking at companies closure departments. You know, there's big companies that had a focus, they switched, and they have this closure department that has been sitting there for 25, 30 years. Some of the most successful stories in the resource sector globally are all deals that the majors just put in their closure department. So there, there's a bunch of them. And there's a lot of smart guys in the industry. Um, but there's nowhere near as many uh, smart guys as there are companies looking for that capital. If you take the whole gold sector like the whole gold sector from the streamers like Franco Nevada and Weed and Precious to Barrick and Newmont and all of the guys and then all the mid-tier producers, the developers, and then the, the juniors who are looking for a dream. Just the amount that like Facebook moved up in one day is greater than the whole sector right. combined. It is like such a small and insignificant factor that the big money isn't flowing into the sector because of passive management. Passive management has these metrics. This is why like five companies make up 25% of the S&P because yeah. they don't care. Like that's their, it's an algorithm. It's a, it's passive. It's an ETF. That's it's, just the it, way it it's is. Mindless. It's just, yeah. yeah, it's just an algo. But, but for uh, some quick metrics, first thing I do in a PowerPoint, you know, you get this whole thing. I don't need a management team with shiny shoes walking into my office, looking for money from me, telling me about the gold sector. So right off the bat, okay, flip through that, flip through that, flip through mm -hmm. that. I look at the management team, okay? And the first thing, any management team, when they don't show a simple metric, what percentage do you own? What is your dollar invested? And where's the price? Because they don't want you to know that. But a guy like Ross Beatty, 
who look is a very close friend of mine. We've we've had differences. We we we've been on other sides of deals. We've been on the same sides. So this is what I'm trying to. When you said how many other, there's lots of guys. I've been on the same side as the Lundins and opposite side of the Lundins. So we're all in it to take it and keep it. You know, there is no okay. You you take the score this time. Uh, I'll get the next one. That's not how it works. Um, we're 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 all financial predators looking for the kill and. He will tell you, this is how much dollars I've invested in. And he's down on his investment by like 35, 40%. Just that metric there tells you he's probably got a good chance of making this work. Those are the type of things that you can quickly assess. So even though, and look, it's an aging industry too, Adam. I've had some very close friends who I've worked with for 20 years pass away and they passed away quickly. And this is the thing that, you know, if you're a young person in university, you probably don't want to spend a year in the bush, like my wife's a geologist, and then she went and did her MBA in finance. She spent a year living in the bush, right? That that takes a personal toll. Yep. There's not many other, you know, the industry's trying to bring in women and diversity, but it's going to struggle to do so. So if you look at the boards, most of the women are either on the accounting or legal side. So the industry has to do a better job from the grassroots, from an educational standpoint, but most of the education is anti-mining on the start. So you have to look at what's going on from that aspect. So a lot of things are working against mining. And again, the industry about 20 years ago went to where the gold is. There's a very famous saying of the, the founder of Barrick, a guy named Peter Monk. He was one of the legends in the business. He said, look, we're going to these places because that's where the gold is. Now, I like to counter that and said, well, if there is a God, God created the gold, but the devil took it and spread it around. And to fuck with everyone, he put it in places that are going to screw with people, right? So that's where you see uh, things like what's going on in, in the Congo and, and all these places like Argentina, which has incredible endowment of minerals. The problem is the government. So you have to be aware. Look at Russia. Russia has some amazing copper assets. They have incredible endowment. Robert Friedland went there, left with his tail between his legs. Same thing with Ross Speedy. Do you know how many guys have gone to try to make Russia when the curtain fell to try to make it work? What advantage does anyone in the West have going into a country like Russia? Are you insane? Or Kazakhstan or Uzbekistan or any of the Stans or anywhere in Africa? Come on, guys. Now, if it's, you know, there there could be exceptions if they're truly like a family who's there and they have businesses and experience and the network and partners. Okay, I'm not painting at all a bush, but just a little bit of common sense and logic will save your portfolio. Think about it. Do your portfolio a favor. De-risk it. All right. Well, look, I'm, I'm loving all this great insider perspective that you're providing here, Marin. For the the person who's watching this, who's, you know, an average investor um, who believes the the story and the promise of the commodity space. And by the way, we haven't talked about your your famous commodity chart of commodity prices versus the S&P, but we'll talk about that in a second. Um, I mean, I think you're giving them really good heart here. I mean, you're giving them, you know, what to look for uh, in terms of what you think makes a successful deal. You're telling them they don't have to stretch uh, too far out on the risk curve in terms of jurisdiction or in terms of, uh, you know, they don't have to go for the explorer that's promising they're going to find something big tomorrow, right? They can look for the existing deposits and stuff like that. Um, now, you are, you know, part of your success, given the, the type of investor you are, and there are very few investors like you out there, um, forgetting about your experience for a second, you know, you're coming in and you're you're providing early big capital to these plays. Um, you're oftentimes you know, employing specialists to help you go on site and really figure out what's going on. The average person who's going to be making investments from their, you know, their armchair, um, are, are there, is there enough opportunity in these publicly traded stocks as long as they, you know, look for the things you've done, maybe, maybe really search for a good analyst who has a similar approach and a good track record? Um, is there still you know, enough meat on the bone there for them? Or is, is the value really captured by people like you who can get in early and you know, kind Whichever, of value? Yeah, so find someone that you can invest in at the same time at the same price. So the skin in the game is equal. That, that's the key part. The other part is, what is your time frame? What is your patience? A big thing I see, I'll use my doctor friend, Dr. B. Um, I use him as a contrarian indicator. And I, this will be a shock to him to hear, but super smart busy saving people's lives 
he's tired when he gets home. Then he has a wife and kids and he's got mm -hmm. just the realities of life. He doesn't have the time to do it. But, you know, he talks to other doctors who, you know, have high income, but really struggling to build that true dynastic net worth. But they were the ones that you think should have the ability to do that. But because they don't have the time to do it, what I see the biggest mistake from what I'd call um, people trying to get into the game is I got a hundred grand and I want to deploy it now, or I've got 50 grand or I got a million and a half. And, and then they get aggressive just because you want to invest and you're ready and your brokerage account is set up and you have cash. That does not mean it's the right time to set up. So I've tried to create, okay, is it a speculation or is it an investment? Now, if it's a speculation, never, I don't care how good of a story is, these are rules that we put in. Never buy more than 5% of your overall, let's say you want to put 100 grand, Adam, toward a resource stock, mm -hmm. the resource sector, sorry. Never put more than 5% into any one speculation and never put more than 10% of your resource portfolio in any one investment. Number one. Number two, never buy your whole allocation today because- mm -hmm. You're, you got a hard on for this stock and you want to buy it today. Buy it in four tranches. We have a one, two, three, four tranche. Because guess what? Mr. Market will give you many opportunities. So you got to be patient. I, I talked uh, a lot about you know uh, some of the big uh, energy stories. I'll use the one that I wrote about in my book, uh, which became Altera. When it was $20 a stock, I said this was insane. It was raw speedy stock. And maybe it was my ignorance or my Slavic roots to not understand uh, proper etiquette, but he was on a panel. I was the moderator. And someone said, well, what do you think of Altera? I go, holy crap, that thing is priced to perfection. They haven't even built a single thing that they're going to do, but it's priced in because it's Ross and because the sector's hot and they financed and it is exciting in 2009. And I go, this thing's going to go down for at least 50 to 75%. And then when you hits the tax losses, and then every operation has what I call its kinks, where you gotta, you know, you gotta work the process out. And he looked behind and he was shocked because I guess it was the first time that someone would call out a legend in the industry. And I didn't mean it to be rude. Someone asked me a question and I was just very honest. That was in 09. And by 2015, I ended up becoming the second largest shareholder of that company. And then we ended up selling it to a major company. My subscribers heard the whole journey. And it took me a long time to build that position. I would tell people, I've just bought my first tranche at this price. And guess what? Sometimes your second and third tranche are going to be way lower than your first tranche or higher. It depends on what the value of the stock is at the time. So patience to be waiting. Um, I love private placements. You know, even Rick, if you ask him, I'm the king of what Rick calls the Katusa warrant. I'm probably responsible about two thirds of five-year listed tradable warrants on the exchange. Um, I love getting that double kicker because if I'm right, that warrant pays me twice as much. Mm -hmm. And my theory is this, you know, if management team get options and brokers get commissions, why the hell shouldn't investors who are taking all the risk get paid at least to have some sort of uh, uh, parity in, in payouts? Because, um, you know, there's things like Glass-Lewis and ISIS and all these different uh, uh, supposed to be independent third party, who, by the way, get paid by the company. So that independence factor is kind of, hmm. but that are trying to equal the play and really bring management teams to like equalize with shareholders. God, like these family off, like find a management team who run their public company, like it's a private family office, a private family business, because that could save you 90% of your research time is just to focus on the good people. Uh, you're probably not going to be able to compete with me on the technical metrics and who to call on a porphyry deposit and who to call on a VMS deposit or, or a shale deposit. Look, I have an advantage there, but we all have the ability to just look at the people and the compensation and say, hmm, does that make sense? Would a private family run their private dynasty business this way? Hell no. no. And if it does it make sense? It probably won't make sense. All right. Well, that's great. Well, look, Marin, um, I, I think you've inspired a lot of people in this conversation. And, um, you know, I'm going to guess if they've got one, um, one uh, anxiety about 
you know, their ability to do this well is, is they just don't have, you know, the depth of experience that you have. And uh, if I understand correctly, uh, you do, I believe you offer a service that kind of lets people sort of sit over your shoulder and see the decisions you're making. Is that true? Yeah. And it's not for everyone. Um, you know, just buying a membership to a gym. And if you're not going to use it and read it, it's not for you. Um, I haven't had a private placement in almost 18 months because if I'm not willing to be the lead order at the same time, at the same price as everyone else, um, and, and I get a lot of complaints about that. The alligators are like, Marin, I signed up for your thing, but I publish, I'll put up my research with anybody in the industry, but it's only value to you if, if you want to pay the process, the, 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 do the time the mental commitment of reading this material. So when I do come up with a private placement, you have all the links and you have the background information to make the decision at that time. Um, I've worked on many private placements for the last 18 months that fell through because of technical reasons or legal reasons. Um, I don't like lawyers. I think they overcharge and underdeliver. Most accountants, same thing. Um, and I want things where they commit to an exact time of when it's going to trade on a big league exchange. Most of the capital is in the US. Most of these companies aren't Canadian because it's just the industry is kind of like saying, why are tech deals coming out of Silicon Valley? Well, it's just right. the way it is. Most of the resource companies are coming out of Canada, but it makes no sense for an American to convert into US dollars and then list this company on a Canadian exchange that is always going to trade under value because the big passive ETF money can't even buy on that exchange. Yep. But here's the thing, Adam, if it's a world-class deposit, the Beatles never played when they made it and they were world-class. They didn't play at little dives and things where you couldn't fit a lot of liquidity, like people in small, they go to the Madison Square Gardens, right. the New York Stock Exchange, the NASDAQ. And if you have something world-class with the, usually world-class people, find world-class deposits and make world-class cash flows. It would qualify to list on the New York or the NASDAQ, but here's a catch. A lot of these companies are Canadian. That means their lawyers are Canadian. They don't want to let go of that cash cow of legal fees and hand it off to an American lawyer. So they have their fingers in there, which means delays and costs. So when I put timelines going, okay, if you're not listed by this time, you defer all your fees and you got to pay a penalty. Oh, fuck. Then you see them going, well, we, we can't do that. Some of the lawyers in the business are trying to get a percentage of the capital raised. They're a service provider. That, that makes no sense. But that's where the industry is going because of the lack of discipline. Well, take someone with some testicular fortitude to fix things up. And how you do it is don't fund these jackasses, right? The deposit's not going to disappear. Just the management will. Testicular fortitude. It's a great way to put it. So um, if we can just talk real quickly. Well, first question, just because you mentioned it. Um, is that where the biggest value gain is historically sort of your investments is when you get them to be able to be listed on a U.S. exchange and, and all of a sudden a lot more capital is able to be able to go into it? Once you show the, uh, you get that listing and then you show that it has that quality of deposit. Yes. And then once you get like, for example, um, the Russell 2000, they'll just buy eight, nine, 10% because they have to, regardless of the price. So what we did with our subscribers, I saw that it qualified and I put a Katusa free ride on it saying, Hey, I believe that you're going to see a big passive index come because of the market. They base it off a of market cap. That's it. That's that one index. Yep. It doesn't care if you're a lollipop maker or a security company or a gold company. If you have a market cap, that's the threshold for that index. And it's, we're talking about hundreds of billions of dollars of market cap value in that index. Well, why? if we're sitting on a big gain, why not reduce your risk and sell? And I think I put it over four or 450, whatever it was at the time, it was about a year ago. Um, let them take some and I de-risk. So I let my subscribers out first. Then I took that big because I have to... I have big positions in these companies. So I also got to worry about the subscribers and myself. So do I sell early? Probably. Is it fine? It's all about having capital to take advantage of. This is an industry that is so capital intensive. Do not worry about missing the boat. There's always going to be a new concept or a new idea or a new venture that needs capital. You just need to be patient. 
Yeah, I mean, what I really hear you saying sort of again and again and again, so I'm sort of intimating from what you're saying is, is look, you know, time is on your side. Just wait until the advantages are unfairly, you know, on your side and then pounce them. Like Buffett calls it the fat pitch, right? And it's so much easier to do that today when I'm getting 5% in the bank, cashable daily. Right. You know, and I look at these Because the pain of waiting is less, is less now that you're getting paid exactly. on Exactly. It. No, it's still painful. It's not that great. But I look at these management team and I go, do I want to meet with them? just something simple? Like you can just watch a video on YouTube. It is easier today, Adam, than when I started out. It was not that like, like when the younger generation say to me, oh, well, you had it easy, Marin. It's way harder today. And <laughs> like, please, now you can just watch a YouTube video. Follow your gut. You have that blink theory and go do I like this person, right? Like your body will tell you if you trust this guy. And if it's a no, move on to the next one. And when I see these management teams come in, I just watch them. I go, do I really want another meeting with this group? There's so many companies out there. There's so many assets. The world is a big place. The, 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 the sector is so vast. Um, don't just be, and, and a thing, you know, people are, I so many people come to me and I go, I subscribe to nine uh, newsletters and I've got 38 stocks. And yeah. what do you think of this company? I'm like, whoa, 38 stocks. Like, I don't even know 38 phone numbers. I probably don't even know 38 people's full names. Uh, never mind the detail to own that type of phone. Like I said, I'm like one of the big players in the sector and I own two gold companies. I own one uranium company. I own two carbon companies. Um, you know, like I'm a pretty disciplined guy. And I, I always talked about the Brookfield story uh, during COVID. This was a company that I was writing about for five years. And I said, just wait, just wait. Same thing as Pabina. But if you can buy these big companies at true Buffett valuations, you're going to get an opportunity to de-risk, take that opportunity and collect what I call the infinite dividend when you have no cost base and these things just pay you yield. Yeah. That is the perfect portfolio. I've always said a perfect portfolio is a bunch of Katusa free rides with no cost base and a bunch of warrants that you get for no, if they work out, they work out. If not, big deal. But you don't need to take the risk just by staying disciplined. You can avoid a lot of the headaches. All right. Um, boy, I'm trying to wrap this up to be respectful of your time, um, but you keep um, just coming up with great comments that make me want to ask you a lot more questions. I'm, I'm going to end it here, but real quick, you used a couple of terms. I just want to make sure that the viewers here understand what you mean. So you've mentioned Katusa free rides a couple of times. Can you just explain what that is? Sure. If you buy a stock at one and it goes to two, sell half your cost base, plus maybe a little bit more to pay your tax, and then just put it in the set and forget category. Okay. So this is sort of the almost infinite return. Like you, you, you've yeah. taken your money out of the game. It's now just house money you're playing with. And I think in our portfolio, all but three companies are Katusa free rides. So, you know, and, and that doesn't mean I won't buy back into a Katusa free ride. It just means that I want to reduce my, and, and I do believe across the board, we're going to see more financial pain in all companies, the margins, the sales, you look at companies, even from 3M to uh, the S&P 500 categories, you're seeing more margin compression. The mm -hmm. economy is slowing. Interest rates are coming up. It's all going to just play out and, and you have time. Time is your ally. All right, great. And then real quick, you mentioned warrants, which people have heard on this channel a couple of times, but in specifically in the case of uh, uh, these natural resource plays, um, just the real quick definition of, of what those do for you and why they interest you. Sure. So if you do a financing, in a public company, you get a unit, a unit, let's just hypothetically say you buy a stock for $5 a unit. And with that, you have the right that comes and I do what's called the full five-year warrant. That's the maximum the exchange will approve. A five-year listed tradable warrant that gives you the right, but not the requirement to buy a stock later at 750. I'm just using numbers as an example. Mm -hmm. But then what I've done is really what I brought to the sector was, okay, that's great. But learning the ropes, I re realized that some of these big investors would lean on the stock. And there was a thing, um, blow your shares, ride your warrants. So I inverted that by saying, wait a second, what if I could do this? If I listed that warrant as its own equity, so it actually has its own ticker symbol, right? 
Yep. That ticker symbol now, what if there, and there's funds out there, it's an option. It's just like a put or a call because it's a time-based expiry. Mm -hmm. And what we do then is say, why do I want to sell the share? If I can get all my money back by selling that warrant, the share never has that expiry date. And we've done it multiple times in the portfolio. So you get a share and a warrant, you get them both listed. And then if you could sell your warrant to reduce the risk of, or the cost base of your share, you're laughing. Right. I mean, you basically fund the free ride with with the warrants. That's right. Okay. Super interesting. So many other questions for you. You remind me so much of Andrew Carnegie, uh, who uh, said, "Hey, you know, some people, uh, some investors, you know, their advice is is put your money in multiple baskets, right, to diversify." And he says, "No, no, no. I put my money in one basket, and then I just watch that basket really, really closely." Uh, you know, you're looking for super high quality baskets and just focusing all your attention on them. Um, all right. Well, look, uh, this has been great, Marin. Uh, thanks so much for coming. I'm glad this was finally able to happen. And um, I really look forward to, to having you back on the program again in the future, whenever you want to come on. Um, for folks that have really enjoyed this and would like to learn more about you and your work, follow you and your work, but potentially, you know, perhaps learn more about that service where they can sit on your shoulder and see what trades you're making. Um, particularly the private placements, um, where where can they go? Just go to the website, katusaresearch.com. Everything I've ever done from day one is all there on the website. All my articles you can, and the videos and all that stuff, it's all out there. And like I said, if I'm one of the guys that I think are playing with skin in the game, disclose everything, and doesn't mean I'm perfect, but I'll go up against anyone in the industry. And it's not for everyone. You know, our service is expensive um, and I believe it's rightfully so. And it's if you have 10 grand or 20 grand to invest in the sector, I'm not your guy. Don't don't even go there. But if you want to spend the time to invest. And when I like I said, there's been a year where I've done seven private placements and then I've gone 18 months with zero. If you're someone that needs instant gratification and day trading, I'm not your guy. But if you want to know about technical stuff, like you mentioned that one chart, our stuff, just to give you an example, uh, banks, the research that banks use reproduce our material in their banking material, right? So that kind of gives you an idea of where we are in the industry. All right. Super useful for doing that. Uh, Thank you so much. I know there's going to be a lot of people watching here uh, who are going to be interested in learning uh, more about your services there. Uh, Kind of the the busy doctor you described uh, is sort of the the bullseye. Who, by the way, I love. Dr. B is one of my favorite people. Well, well, so so a lot of our viewers here are professionals, doctors, lawyers, et cetera, who are kind of too busy with their real lives, uh, who need to be plugging into somebody who's doing this full time. But specific to Dr. B, um, when you talk to him, please thank him for encouraging you to come on the program uh, and, and especially thank him for all of us for ensuring that you're actually here. Uh, we owe him a huge debt of gratitude. Um, Me too. <laughs> <laughs> it's just been wonderful, Marin. Thanks so much for coming on. Like I said, doors open to you anytime you want to come back on in the future. Folks, if you've enjoyed this, please do us a favor. Uh, cast your vote of support by hitting the like button, then clicking on the red subscribe button, as well as that little bell icon right next to it. Um, it's just been great, Marin. Thank you so much. It was my pleasure. Thank you. Everyone else, thanks so much for watching.